Uh, Good afternoon. It's good to be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of your invasion of a world broken by sin, a new creation has dawned, and we pray that you would help us to minister effectively in it. We pray that you would grace us with your spirit leading us into wisdom and understanding your word and, and being savvy and wise about the way that we, uh, we conduct ourselves and the way that we lead our people. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we started, no, there wasn't any professor in here, so I was terribly excited. And I thought finally an opportunity to say some real things. But then Professor Rasmussen and Grop walked in. And so we'll have to curtail those uh, actual comments. Uh, Jonathan told you a little bit, I think, um, the nature of chapel is changing a little bit this semester, and so he hasn't given me a text to speak on. He's asked me to speak on a subject that relates to the mission and values of Redeemer Seminary, and that is new creation. And uh, at Trinity Harbor, which is the church that I pastor, we orient uh, part of our vision around the three images of Richard Hayes' moral vision of the New Testament, which are cross-community and new creation. So new creation is actually something that's very near and dear to our hearts. So we might start simply by asking, what is new creation? wonder how you would answer that question. Uh, If it was posed to you, when Paul uses the phrase new creation, what does he mean? What is he trying to get at? Uh, Hayes writes this, which is a great sentence. The church embodies the power of the resurrection in the midst of a not yet redeemed world. By new creation, what we're often trying to get at at Trinity Harbor is that uh, we participate in new creation to the extent that we promote the rule and authority of Jesus as King and in the ways that we work to roll back the effects of sin, to roll back the fall, which indeed also promotes the reign and authority of Jesus Christ. But in order uh, to unpack uh, this idea of new creation a little bit, Apart from a number of sources that have been hugely influential for me, uh, not only during seminary, but then post-seminary. And so I'd, I'd like for us to kick around Galatians a little bit. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And a lot of these initial comments are generated by J. Lewis Martin's commentary on the book of Galatians, which I think really helps us to see the, the apocalyptic nature of Galatians, the way in which Paul understands that God is radically broken in to a fallen uh, and, and, and broken world in order to uh, begin something that is wholly new and somewhat unexpected. Now, you guys, you, you probably get all the time the uh, overlap of ages illustration, right? You all with me? No? Yes? Some? All right. Hmm. Uh, whoops, I started too high. Okay. So here's uh, the, what Paul will call the present evil age. And then you have up here new creation going on. Uh, and then what you have is the arrival of Jesus and this overlap of the ages, okay? Now, as a pastor, what's challenging is your people, and maybe even we too, I mean, ask this question of yourselves, like to exist either here or here, but it's very hard to wait faithfully with hope in the midst of the two ages. It's very easy for people to say, well, it's never really coming. And uh, Molman in his Theology of Hope says there's two basic 
this is a place of hope. And there are two basic errors. And this is, um, this is the error of presumption, that it's already arrived. And here you might have somebody say, oh, I've got the ticket. I'm good to go. I don't really need to worry about engaging this world or living in a particular way because I'm just waiting for the train to leave the station and I'm good for glory. You also have some characteristics of, say, the religious right that say Christ's authority is already in place. We just have to make it real politically. But on the other hand, you have, you have d- the presumption of despair. A lot of people saying, I understand these promises, but I don't believe that any of them are coming true. When I look to my right and to my left, all I see are broken situations. I don't see new creation breaking in. And so they, they despair. And so really to lead a people faithfully is to lead them in a place of hope and a belief that they really exist in an overlap of ages, not in one side or the other where there's only one age. So if you look at Galatians 1, 3 through 4, Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Paul speaks of a present evil age as we've just demonstrated and of which I think most of you are well aware then he implies that there is another age. And indeed, in 6.15 of Galatians, he calls this, refers to it as the new creation. But what you, the first thing you have to realize about new creation is Paul sees it as an overlap of ages. We simply haven't entered into the new creation and left the present evil age behind. They exist together in the same time period for now. Now, for Paul, that the ages overlap, that... Um, that Jesus has entered into the present evil age and taking the offense of invading it, bringing forward new creation, means that everything must be reconsidered, that it affects our perception about everything. And indeed, if you just look at the book of Galatians, consider what Paul will reconsider. God himself, God's Christ as a crucified and victorious criminal, Christ's crucifixion as an incorporative event, Uh, Sin, the law, uh, rectification, grace, the neighbor, the cosmos itself. Uh, Martin uses the the analogy, like he says there's a dull earthquake. An earthquake, well, it's not dull, but it sits behind the scenes in Galatians. There's something so profound has happened for Paul that it changes dramatically his perspective of everything. And I think that's a fitting analogy for the book of Galatians. But I look at the church today and I think of our own perspective somehow, sometimes on the new creation. I think it's not very much of an earthquake for us. Our perspective doesn't change that dramatically too often. When we look uh, at the new creation, it, it becomes boiled down to, uh, to a challenging sermon and good music and good child care on a Sunday and then something that doesn't really speak into or affect much else of the week and even less of the, the weak of our people as they move on. They, uh, they don't see it as something that is all-encompassing and that informs every aspect as it does for Paul as he considers the very cosmos being changed. Um, you know, however you want to interpret uh, that they're neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, at the very least you have to, be say, you have to see that Paul is using the very basic rubrics that, that the people of his time period understood society to be organized. And he says those have broken down. Everything in the cosmos has been affected by the new creation uh, dawning. All right, so the first thing I want you to see, we're heading to a particular place, is that 
the new creation really involves an overlap of ages. It involves the present evil age, which is here, and the inbreaking new creation. Now, part of that, I think it's important for you to remember, is that um, you'll, you'll see a lot of this. And you can become just as discouraged. It will be a challenge for you as well to exist in that place of hope between the two ages. If you assume or start to presume that one age is stronger than the uh, well, unquestionably the new creation is stronger than the present evil age and will ultimately be victorious. But by, erring, by going to either side too far, you put yourself in a hard place as a minister. All right, so the second thing that I want to talk about regarding new creation is that the, if the ages overlap, what's our posture in the midst of the overlap of the ages? According to Paul, our posture is one of being at war. If you look at Galatians 5.5, 5, Paul tells us that our posture is now one of waiting, but it's not a waiting that is complacent. In 5.17, he says the class of the ages is understood in terms of a warfare between spirit and flesh. Now, as you probably understand, Paul isn't talking about a physical, spiritual duality. He's talking about a war between this present evil age and the new creation that is on the offensive invading this present evil age. The battle um, is, <clears throat> is, again, not the result of the activities of the present evil age, but it's the result of God himself taking the offensive and entering in in order to affect the new creation. How should we engage, then, if we're involved in a battle, if we still are assuming a posture of war against the flesh of the present evil age, how should we conduct that battle? How will you lead your ministries in conducting that battle? In the last year or two, James Hunter has come out with a uh, valuable critique in which um, a critique of some of the ways in which the church has engaged their battle against this present evil age. He says there are basically three groups or three approaches in contemporary culture, contemporary American culture. Number one is the religious right, and believes that uh, change will happen by affecting change politically and legislating that change. Number two, you have the uh, uh, religious left. Uh, and by the, so religious right, think of James Dobson. Think, um, religious left, think of Jim Wallace. All right, both sides have different agendas for the gospel being played out, but both sides think that the most effective way to establish those, those, those agendas or new creation is through politics. And then the third group are kind of the new Anabaptists, who really advocate that the church should be so serious about their identity that they kind of exist on the fringe of society because if you're really going to be serious about your Christian identity, it will always keep you at arm's length from this present evil age. Now, for the record, I think Hunter is way too hard on the Anabaptists. But that aside, Hunter says that all of these approaches will not actually bring new creation to bear. Now, that's a pretty huge statement. Because he's saying, here's the majority of the way the church has engaged change in the promotion of new creation in our culture. And he's saying they all miss the mark. And he's saying they do for two reasons. Number one... We fail to appreciate that when we adopt uh, the, the means or methods of the way this present evil age works in order to affect change, 
we underestimate the way that that changes us. So he spends a great deal of time looking at the religious right. He says the religious right has, has engaged politics, American democratic, the American democratic system is a means of change, and what's happened? They've come to look very much like that system rather than that system being transformed by the values of new creation. What they thought, what they uh, intended to affect and change has in turn changed them. And uh, he spends a great deal of time offering a lot of quotes that are very telling that the uh, religious right, just an example, speaks very much like a political unit and is so incredibly partisan that they now spend as much time distancing themselves from fellow Christians as they do from working particularly for any change of new creation in particular. The second reason that these approaches don't work is that uh, particularly the first two function on the idea that human beings are ultimately thinkers and rational. And if you get a person to change their mind on a rational platform, you will get them to change their behavior. Now, how many of you believe that? Uh, that's crazy. If you haven't figured this out yet, people aren't rational. You aren't rational. You, uh, you violate your logical commitments and your worldview every day, all the time. Right? And Hunter and also a great book um, by James Smith called Desire in the Kingdom have gone out of their way to spend a lot of time to um, rearticulate what is actually an Augustinian idea is that human beings are ultimately lovers. Right? And we see this, who understands this almost better than anyone are advertisers. Right? If you look at an ad from pre-image era, 1920s or something, you read the ad and it's fascinating because the ad will tell you the qualities of the products you're considering buying. It'll talk about why it's a good product and why it's better than other products and what went into building it. All kinds of details that you would never find in an ad today. Right? You see an ad today and it doesn't tell you anything about the product. In fact, you might even know, not know what the exact product is that's being advertised, but chances are it's promising that it will give you a better life or better sex or make you richer. Right? They understand that if they can make you love what they are offering, often connected to what your heart already loves, they're going to sell a lot more of their product, whether it's rational or not. So, if people aren't rational, then the idea that we'll actually promote change, promote new creation in this world as Christ's ambassadors, boy, we're not saying that thinking isn't important and engaging people logically and rationally isn't important, but we also have to understand that they're lovers and have to, and what really is going to communicate something powerful, something that will actually inspire change, something that communicates love to, to people, to see new creation unfold. I, I think that's an incredibly important question. We're going to answer it by going into the third feature of new creation. The third thing that I want us to consider about new creation is how we are uh, called to faithfully promote it. Okay, so if number one, new creation is, is something that's in-breaking in, an, in a period that's an overlap of ages. Number two, our posture is one of war. It's a battle between those two ages. How do we engage that battle? 
And if Hunter's right, most of the ways in the last century that we've engaged that battle have been ineffective and misplaced. So how do we do a better job? In Galatians 3, 23 through 25, we see that when the fullness of time was at hand, God sent His Son. But how did God send His Son? Uh, he sends this, His Son and He sends the Spirit into our hearts. Uh, so God Himself leads the invasion. Sorry, I've kind of already said that. What I really want you to look at is 3.13. That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, God invades the present evil age, not by force, not by might, but in weakness. He invades by sending His Son who becomes human and then willingly subjects himself to humiliation that he ultimately goes to the cross. And that is the posture that God takes in the midst of the battle against the present evil age that we might be freed from it and that new creation might dawn. I think this is pretty essential because one thing that I believe, you know, it's in, ethics starts today, Right? And he's not in here, right? No, the, the new professor? Okay. All right. Um, I think one, uh, one important thing to realize is that uh, somebody's soteriology is going to affect the shape of their ethics. And by that I mean how you understand yourself to be saved is how you're going to engage other people in exercising the extension of that salvation. Right? In one sense, if you were drowning and got thrown a life buoy and were saved in that fashion, you might use that same means of saving someone if they, in turn, were drowning down the road. Now, one of the things that's been frustrating to me in ministry is actually being disappointed at a particular part of the Westminster Confession. I know not all of you uh, will be in groups that adhere to the Confession, but some of you will be, and you'll certainly interact with it within uh, ethics whenever you get to that class. But um, our tradition orients our ethics around what? Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. The moral law of God. And I don't think this is, this is necessarily bad, and I'm not really looking to beat up unreasonably on uh, the confession of faith, but that is very much the rubric. And if you turn to, for example, the chapter on the law in the confession, it talks about a lot about the law, how it went from Adam to Moses, and now we're freed in Christ to obey it, and that's the rubric of, our, of how we are to live and relate to God and live in this world. And uh, the only hat tip that he gives to Jesus in the chapter is this one line at the end of the fifth paragraph, which says, Neither doth cross in the gospel any way dissolve, much less strengthen this obligation. So Christ doesn't dissolve the law. He strengthens it. Well, how? In what way? Why even mention Christ? And that's it. Now that strikes me as very funny when I read the New Testament at large. Because if we put the Gospels on the shelf just for a minute, if we say that, that Jesus had a somewhat unique relationship to the law as God's vice-regent who plays the role of Israel and handles the curse, 
And because he's doing so many funny things with the law, let alone in the Sermon on the Mount, if we put him on the shelf just for a moment, think with me of the rest of the New Testament. As you read the rest of the New Testament, are the authors urging their people to be pressed into an ethic that is organized by the Ten Commandments? Now, granted, there's references to the commandments, and they'll use them casually when it fits their purposes, but wouldn't you be pressed to say that when you consider the rest of the New Testament, the authors are far more intentional about pressing their people into an ethic that is characterized by the person and work of Christ himself. From, from the self-effacing nature of Christ that uh, causes Paul to sacrifice his rights and privileges in 1 Corinthians 9 and call his people to do the same to the ethical exhortations in Galatians that we would live the law of Christ, which gives, gives um, credence and is the foundation of all, all of the one anothering passages that will come out of that, to Philippians 2, where we have to have the mind of Christ and uh, sacrifice our rights and privileges on behalf of one another. Over and over again, the New Testament authors are wanting you to uh, one of their people, and therefore us, to orient uh, our ethic, I think, very much around a person. Very much around Jesus. Now, again, that doesn't negate the law, but if the author of Hebrews is right in chapter 1, that the Son of God is God's best and last message, it feels just a little bit like when we organize our ethic around the Mosaic law, moving into the basement of redemptive history. There are two things that have been frustrating for me pastorally in trying to work this out. And you might come back and say, well, you're just, of course the law is, is filled out by Christ, and of course we go to Christ to understand rightly the law. Uh, well, A, the confession doesn't really do that, frankly. And B, that's going to be harder for your people. And I wonder if you have to go to Christ to explain the law anyway, why not just go to Christ? And the reasons that I think this is important even further than what I've already said is that Allah is not going to love you. But Jesus is. And that's going to create a dynamic in terms of obedience and faithfulness that Allah can't produce. As you want to see your people grow and increasingly reveal new creation to the world, is Allah what's going to motivate that? Is the law going to do that? Or is Jesus himself the one who loved them enough to die on their behalf. And so it is that I want us to look at Jesus and understand that it is Jesus cross-bearing his, what we often refer to as his passive obedience that becomes so crucial for the New Testament authors in promoting change within their people. That what does it mean to unveil new creation to the world? It means to pick up a cross and follow after Jesus. It means to walk not only in obedience to the law, but more than that, it means to sacrifice our rights and our privileges to even be crucified that he might increasingly be revealed. As, as we close, let me offer you what I think is a neat picture. And it's not a particularly Christian one, but I think you'll see how we'll, we'll apply it uh, after I relate to you. Uh, in a recent essay, about something different. Malcolm Gladwell was drawing on uh, this historical event, which I knew the first part of, 
but didn't know what resulted from it. And you know, you know the first part, uh, I would imagine. It was at 4.30 on a Monday afternoon in, uh, in Fe- on February 1st of 1960. Four uh, college students sat down on a lunch counter at Woolworths in downtown Greensboro, North Carolina. They were uh, freshmen at a uh, North Carolina college. Uh, for It was an all-black school. It was about a mile away. And uh, one of the four simply said, I'd like a, a, like a cup of coffee, please. Well, the waitress replied, uh, we don't serve Negroes here. And uh, the Woolworths lunch counter, have you ever been, I actually grew up in a town with a Woolworths and a Woolworths lunch counter. They're, they're long, very long. Uh, this one had 66 seats and a standing snack bar at the end. And of course, the standing snack bar where they didn't offer service was for the blacks in the community. And so uh, even while they're there, one of the black workers who worked a steam table woke up and, said, and she said, she's a black waitress, she said, you're acting stupid, ignorant, and uh, warned them and asked them to leave, uh, afraid of what was going to happen. At 5.30, uh, sitting there, not being served, the store closed, the doors were locked, and finally uh, the four students left by a side door. Right? This great moment of four individuals who had no, no, no cultural capital, no significance in and of themselves, no power. They were powerless. But this is what I didn't know. By the next morning, the protests had grown to 27 men and four women, most of the same dormitory as the original four. On Wednesday, students from uh, Green, Greens, Greensboro's Negro Secondary School, Dudley High, joined in, and the number of protesters swelled to 80. By Thursday, the protesters numbered 300, including three white women from the Greensboro campus of the University of North Carolina. By Saturday, the synod had reached 600, People spilled out onto the street. By the following Monday, sit-ins had spread into neighboring states. Within the month, there were sit-ins across the South as far west as Texas. And Gladwell summarizes, some 70,000 students eventually took part in the sit-in movement. Thousands were arrested, and untold thousands were radicalized. The reason I love that story is because four individuals with no power believed that uh, they hoped that change could take place. And they sat down and were willing to be persecuted for that hope. And as a result of, of that willingness to be persecuted, change happened and went forth in a radical way. In fact, a, a very certain form of new creation dawned. See, new creation unfolds for us and for the church as we in powerless ways go forth and simply say to the present evil age we're not willing for this to continue it does not gel with the authority of Jesus Christ and we're going to roll back to the extent we can the effects of the of the sin and it happens in radical ways not because we believe that we're powerful enough to affect that change but because we believe that Jesus is powerful enough to, and we're willing to be crucified in that process. That is how new creation continues to dawn in this world. And why, frankly, I think we see so little of it because the church is not willing to be crucified. We're far too comfortable and far too eager about having our own needs and agendas met 
than actually sacrificing our rights and privileges as Jesus does so that salvation might be extended to others. New creation is revealed as we entered into this present evil age. Indeed, on the offensive like Jesus did, but with a willingness to be crucified. Sure, Jonathan's asking me to pray for you all, which I'm sure is much needed. Father, I pray for these sinners and for me a sinner too. We thank you that you uh, went on the offensive on our behalf. And we pray that we would understand that that was accomplished uh, in a very particular way. For you are a God who cares very much, not only about what is accomplished, but how it is accomplished. And so I pray that you would help us to be committed to new creation and committed to the degree that having, uh, knowing that our new creation is entrusted into, in Jesus' hands and his victory, that we would be willing to sacrifice much, that we would be willing to forego our own plans and eagerness and desires and labor intensively, even be willing to be crucified so that new creation might increasingly dawn. And we pray this, that it would be for your glory and honor and for the good of your bride, the church. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to erase all this before I get into trouble.